Hey everyone, it's a beautiful day so I thought I would come outside and uh, offer my introduction to the Victorian age um, from my front porch. Unlike the Romantic period, the Victorian age is not named after a particular literary or aesthetic movement. Instead, it's named after a monarch, Queen Victoria, who reigned from 1837 until 1901. It's a longer, more heterogeneous and diverse period than its immediate predecessor. But while it's not dominated by one artistic or literary movement in quite the same way that the Romantic period is, we can nonetheless still make some generalisations about the Victorian age. As we shift from Romantic to Victorian, we shift, broadly speaking, from a focus on introspection, subjectivity and the self, to a focus on duty, society, and a higher moral purpose. Individualism persists, but it's tied to ideas of self-reliance and the work ethic, epitomised by Samuel Smiles' self-help, which argues that anyone, or at least any man, can improve their position through hard work and perseverance. Queen Victoria herself comes to epitomise this age. Unlike the last of the Georgian kings, George IV, who was known for eating too much, spending too much and having too many mistresses, Victoria is a highly respectable monarch who has a strong sense of duty and an attachment to family, which is just as well as she had nine children with her beloved husband Albert. If you look Victorian up in the Oxford English Dictionary, you'll discover that it has a second figurative meaning, which is resembling or typified by the attitudes supposedly characteristic of the Victorian era, prudish, strict, old-fashioned, outdated. Ever since the early 20th century, the Victorian era has popularly been viewed as a stodgy, stuffy era obsessed with propriety. What we have to understand, however, is that this is not how the Victorians themselves experienced this age. Instead, the Victorians were only too aware of living through a period of rapid and unsettling change on almost every level, technological, economic, social, as John Stuart Mill suggested in 1831, we are living in an age of transition. And it's this sense of living in an age of transition which is one of the things that can connect us to this period. If we were to travel back in time, however, the most obvious changes would be technological. At the very beginning of the Victorian period, people still travelled around the country by stagecoach or on foot. In 1830, the Liverpool-Manchester railway line opened and by 1897, more than 15,000 miles of railway track had been laid. The period also saw the invention of steam press printing, photography, the telegraph, the phonograph, the typewriter, and at the end of the century, the telephone, the bicycle, the car, inventions that we take for granted today. These inventions transformed the speed at which people, goods and information could travel around the country and eventually the world. But these developments weren't seen as unalloyed benefits. In much the same way that we see anxieties today about how the internet and smartphones have changed our lives, there's also an anxiety about the rate at which life seems to be accelerating. And it's that anxiety that's very familiar to us in the early 21st century. Britain's economy had also been transformed by another technological change, the harnessing of steam power in the middle of the 18th century that resulted in the Industrial Revolution. 
We've talked before about the impact of this shift from an agrarian economy to one that's based on the machine manufacture of goods. But it's only in the Victorian era that the impact of industrialization really becomes clear. As historian Christopher Harvey writes, only around 1830 were people conscious of substantial and permanent industrial change. But while industrialization ensured Britain grew richer and richer through the Victorian period, it's really important that we understand that this material wealth was not evenly distributed. Industrialization saw the rural poor moving from the countryside to the city, leaving behind agricultural work in favour of employment in factories. For many members of the working class, however, this new urban existence involved living in overcrowded, unsanitary slitty slums and working long hours in noisy, dangerous factories for a pittance. These conditions prompted some Victorian era commentators, such as Thomas Carlyle, to warn that industrialization had come with severe social costs. In the 1840s especially, many feared that violent revolution was a real possibility in Britain if the rich did not improve the conditions of the poor. But if we're familiar with the ways in which industrialization changes class relations, it's almost as important that we recognize the ways in which it changed gender relations. Before industrialization, home and the work were often not separate. The farmhouse served an important economic function, while textile workers like weavers tended to work in their own dwellings. Even shopkeepers usually lived with their families above their shops. With industrialization, urbanization, and the growing role of factories, the domestic sphere of the home and the commercial sphere of work become increasingly separate and increasingly gendered, with the result that men are associated with public commercial settings, while women are associated with private domestic spaces. As a result, for women, especially middle-class women, there were actually fewer employment opportunities by the mid-19th century than there were at the end of the 18th century. Rather than imagining Victorian society as prudish, strict and old-fashioned, then we should instead recognise this period as one of rapid and disorienting change, as technological and economic developments transform social relations. This sense of rapid change is also compounded by scientific discoveries in the period, which begin to unsettle foundational beliefs. Two scientific discoveries in particular challenge these existing structures of belief. These scientific discoveries centre around geology and evolution. From the late 18th century onwards, geologists such as James Hutton and Charles Lyell had made discoveries that prompted them to argue that the Earth is far older than the Bible suggests. Rather than being around 6,000 years old, these geological discoveries indicated instead that the Earth is many millions of years old. These discoveries are important, not just because they challenged literal readings of the Bible. These discoveries also made possible another theory, evolution, a process which requires many millions of years. Charles Darwin first published his theory in The Origins of the Species in 1857, and it was greeted, as you probably know, with um, uproar and controversy. The social theorist and art critic John Ruskin sums up the response of many Victorians to these scientific developments. He said, If only the geologists would let me alone, I could do very well. 
but those dreadful hammers, I hear the clink of them at the end of every cadence of the Bible verses. Ruskin had been raised to read the Bible as literally true in an evangelical household. As a consequence, these new scientific discoveries, which tested the literal truth of the Bible, tested the very foundations of his faith. These challenges to traditional religious belief, along with other technological, economic and social changes, led to a sense of melancholy in much Victorian poetry and prose. There's a perception that the present is flawed and the future uncertain. We see this pessimism manifested in reflections on personal emotional crises and in a nostalgia for the remote past, as the Victorians become obsessed with medieval themes and Arthurian romance. Significantly, both themes are apparent even in the painting that the Norton has chosen for its cover image for this volume, John Everett Mealy's Ophelia, which depicts the suicide of Hamlet's Ophelia. Hardly a cheery topic, of course. Indeed, the nation's problems seemed so pressing that many commentators viewed Romanticism's valorization of the artist's private emotional life as self-indulgent. Tennyson's poetry frequently problematizes artistic isolation as a consequence, while Browning unsettles the lyric eye of poetry, questioning the supremacy that the imagination had played for the Romantics. And while some writers of the period engaged directly with what was called the condition of England in industrial novels such as Elizabeth Gaskell's Mary Barton in North and South or Charles Dickens' Hard Times, even works such as George Eliot's Silas Marner or Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market can be understood as direct responses to contemporary Victorian anxieties. Silas Marner comments on the present by depicting the past, while Rossetti's poem uses allegory to address changing class gender and social relations. That's our whirlwind introduction uh, to the Victorian period. I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, what you think about our readings. Um, I'd encourage you as always get outside and do your reading outside um, if you can while the weather remains so beautiful. It's great to get away from screens for a while. All right, hope to speak to you soon. Bye-bye. and welcome to the mini-lecture on Alfred Lord Tennyson. In the introduction to the Victorian period, I talked about technological change. Tennyson is the first writer in this course that we not only have a photograph of, but also a voice recording. You can hear him here reciting the charge of the Light Brigade. Tennyson was the most successful poet of the Victorian era. He was extremely popular, earning more than £10,000 a year, some years, through his poetry. To put that into perspective for you, that's around a million dollars in today's money. He was also well respected and became Poet Laureate in 1850 after the death of William Wordsworth. Like many Victorian poets, especially those from the early Victorian period, Tennyson was highly influenced by the Romantics. In fact, if you look at the date of his birth, you'll see he's only 14 years younger than Keats, and he was often compared to Keats by his contemporaries. Importantly, however, this was not always intended to be a flattering comparison, signalling the shift away from the values of romantic poetry that I discussed in the introduction to this period. Edward Bulwer-Lytton, for example, accused Tennyson of the 
effeminacies of the Cockney school and of a want of manliness and love, a eunuch strain. You'll remember, of course, that the Cockney school is the school of poetry that Keats was associated with. What's interesting here is the way in which Lytton's attack on Tennyson is gendered. These accusations tell us something about the ways in which Victorian expectations surrounding poetry and the poet are changing, as poetry is increasingly seen as an unsuitable occupation for a man. We see this shift illustrated by the kind of advice Tennyson received. His friend R.C. Trench, for example, warned him that, quote, we cannot live in art, while John Stuart Mill, another influential Victorian figure, suggested that Tennyson should cultivate, and with no half devotion, philosophy as well as poetry, as if poetry by itself was inadequate. Both of these statements speak to the Victorian era's shift away from romantic introspection to a renewed emphasis on duty and a higher moral purpose. Art and poetry, especially for men, came to be seen as somewhat indulgent in this period. Evidence that you're neglecting what should be your proper work and your proper duties. In the introduction to the Victorian period, I draw attention to Victorian pessimism. Tennyson's poetry epitomises this mood in many ways. His epic poem, In Memoriam, for example, which was published in 1850 and written after the death of his friend Arthur Hallam, not only explores Tennyson's religious doubt, but it also engages explicitly with Tennyson's response to emerging scientific theories, especially those geological discoveries that I discussed earlier. Tennyson also exhibits a nostalgia for the remote past, and we see medieval themes and Arthurian romance in the two poems we read, an interest, of course, that echoes Keats' use of a medieval chivalric theme in La Belle Dame Sans Merci. You read two poems by Tennyson this week. The first, Mariana, was published in 1830. It's based on a brief reference in Shakespeare's Measure for Measure to a character named Mariana, who has been abandoned by her lover, Angelo. If you know the play, you'll know that Angelo is the villain, but that he does eventually marry Mariana after she takes the place of Isabella at a midnight assignation. This return to Shakespeare is, of course, a notable instance of Tennyson turning to historic subject matter, making this poem characteristic of Victorian pessimism's turn to the past. It also dwells on a personal emotional crisis, but unlike much romantic poetry, this crisis is conveyed through the third person rather than the first person, which distances us somewhat from Mariana's experience. You will observe a correlation between her environment and her state of mind, much like that that we see in romantic poetry. And this might prompt us to consider the relationship of this third person speaker to Mariana. Should we understand this landscape as really gloomy, or is it somehow or other a projection of Mariana's mind conveyed through this third person speaker? I mentioned critics frequently accuse Tennyson of effeminacy. We see Tennyson's affinity with the feminine in this poem, which deals, of course, with a female protagonist in the domestic sphere. As such, Tennyson's depiction of female experience here seems to be in line with emerging Victorian gender ideology, 
which associates women with the home and men with the public sphere of work and commerce. But the home in Tennyson's poem is not a space of female happiness, but of female unhappiness, and is not associated with fertility, but with images of sterility. Should we read this poem, therefore, as a challenge to Victorian views of women? Or does the problem lie with Marianne herself, who's failed to fulfil the ideal womanly role of wife and mother? The second poem that I asked you to read um, was The Lady of Shalop, which some of you might already be familiar with if you've read Anne of Green Gables. Much as Marianne returns to historical subject matter, so does The Lady of Shalop. In it, Tennyson explicitly draws on Arthurian romance. It's a version of the tale of Elaine, the fair maid of Astolay, which appears in Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, though Tennyson himself claims never to have read Mallory's text. Here again we have a female protagonist, like Mariana, and again she's stuck in the domestic sphere, which is associated not with marriage, but rather with loneliness and isolation. Much as Mariana yearns for her lover, the Lady of Shalott begins a quest for Lancelot's love that results ultimately in her ruin and death. Like Mariana, we can recognise the Lady of Shalott as a representative of Victorian womanhood, and most especially the increasing association of women with the domestic sphere and of their exclusion from the public commercial sphere, which is represented in this poem by Camelot. However, we can also read the Lady of Shalott as an exploration of the role of the artist. On the one hand, the Lady of Shalott evokes Victorian anxieties that art and literature were fundamentally feminine pastimes and not suitable for the employment of men. But on the other hand, we might also read this poem as Tennyson's rejection of R.C. Trench's warning that we cannot live in art. After all, the Lady of Shalott brings on her own doom when she leaves her productive artistic seclusion and enters into wider society. All right, well, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on Tennyson's poem. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hello and welcome to uh, my mini lecture on Robert Browning. Besides Tennyson, Browning is usually regarded as the most important and influential of the Victorian poets. Though his career got off to a slower start, by the 1860s he had achieved the same kind of fame and success as Tennyson. Browning was also one half of literature's most famous marriage. In 1846 he eloped with and married the poet Elizabeth Barrett, freeing her, famously, from the tyranny of an ultra-possessive father. While Tennyson and Browning's poetry dominates the Victorian period, arguably, their work has surprisingly little in common, except perhaps an interest in historical subject matter. As you'll have noticed, Browning's poetry frequently draws on the Italian Renaissance, as like other Victorian writers, he turns to the past in order to understand the present. While we can connect the two poets in terms of subject matter, in terms of style, however, their work is markedly different, as you probably noticed. In contrast to the musicality of Tennyson's poetry, Browning's work is instead often discordant and sometimes strangely colloquial. As Thomas Carlyle put it, Alfred knows how to jingle, but Browning does not. And it's helpful here to know that Browning began his career as a playwright, as Tennyson indeed ended his. 
This early interest in drama can help us understand why Browning's poetry often sounds more or less like natural speech and why his poems often tell a story of some sort. Most importantly, however, this early interest in drama can also help us understand Browning's use of the dramatic monologue, which is the poetic form that he really makes his own. The dramatic monologue is a poem that is written in the first person in which the poet adopts a persona that is very clearly not his or her own. This is an important distinction from romantic lyric poetry, where it's very easy for us to conflate the speaker with the poet, even if that assumption is sometimes misguided. Dramatic monologues can look almost like a speech that's been clipped out of a play. Indeed, these poems often begin mid-speech, creating explosive openings. And the dramatic monologue shares certain characteristics with drama. For example, they have a sense of immediacy and of situation. We'll encounter a speaker who is talking to an implied silent audience at a very particular moment and in a very particular situation. Browning himself adopted the form after the publication of his first work, Pauline which was criticised by John Stuart Mill for its, quote, intense and morbid self-consciousness. After this criticism, Browning decided to avoid confessional writing, a position that he made explicit in a disclaimer that he attached to dramatic lyrics in 1842. This disclaimer presents Browning's poetries as, quote, so many utterances of so many imaginary persons, not mine. This disclaimer, in other words, constitutes an explicit warning to his readers not to conflate his real-life identity with the I of any of his poems. The dramatic monologue is an important form as we move into the Victorian period because it is an explicit reaction against the confessional style of romantic poetry. We can also understand the dramatic monologue as an example of what Isabel Armstrong calls the double poem, which she argues is the defining form of Victorian poetry. A double poem will usually have two meanings that differ markedly from each other. The meaning conveyed by the speaker of the poem and the meaning conveyed by the implied author. By offering two meanings, the dramatic monologue suggests that more than one perspective exists on any topic and that truth is subject to contestation. As such, it introduces a form of moral relativism. What seems moral and correct to the speakers of Porphyria's lover and Mylas Duchess will not, I assume, seem moral and correct to you. More generally, these poems also challenge the notion of a universal poetic eye that speaks for all humanity. The dramatic monologue places lyric utterances within specific social contexts and positions speakers in relation to specific historical moments, specific places, specific situations, and specific audiences. Rather than valorizing subjective perceptions of the world, as Wordsworth's poetry does, for example, Browning's dramatic monologues remind us that subjective perceptions of the world can be dangerous for others. I asked you to read two poems by Browning, Perferia's Lover and My Last Duchess. Perferia's Lover was initially published in 1832 and then again in 1846. When it was republished in the 1840s, 
It was published alongside another of Browning's poems under the title of Madhouse Cells, which is something you might like to think about. We can connect Perferia's lover, if we like, to Tennyson. Much as the Lady of Shalott is apparently punished for transgressing gender norms, so it seems that Perferia too is punished for failing to meet Victorian expectations. She is an active rather than a passive figure, and she comes from the outside into the domestic sphere, where she acts on her sexual desire. Hair is significant in this poem. It's what the speaker uses to strangle Perferia, and it's worth knowing that loose hair in the Victorian period was highly sexualized. The fact that Perferia comes in and unties her hat and lets her damp hair fall is a sign of her relatively loose sexuality. The second poem that I asked you to read, My Last Duchess, was published in 1842. This poem is also set in the historical past, but this time it seems to be a very specific historical moment. Many critics have argued that the Duke closely resembles Alfonso II, who was the fifth and last Duke of Ferrara in Italy. In 1588, Alfonso married Lucretia, who was the 14-year-old daughter of Cosimo de' Medici, the Duke of Florence. But she died in mysterious circumstances in 1561, at the age of only 16. But if that's the initial inspiration for this poem, it is worth knowing that there are similar themes to Victoria to Perferia's lover. Again, we have a speaker who has apparently murdered his romantic partner because of perceived transgressions on her part. Furthermore, we're seeing a recurring pattern in these poems of men who view women as objects to be owned or controlled or hidden away or jealously guarded. Bearing in mind Isabel Armstrong's argument about the double poem, however, we'll want to consider this week the attitudes of the implied author to the fate of these women, especially the extent to which the implied author challenges or undoes the positions that their speakers seem to adopt. All right, thanks for listening. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts on Browning's poems.